very good to see you all in between celebrations for Mexican Independence Day and the Falcons later tonight. It's wonderful for us to find a little bit of time this afternoon to gather together. We're going to be sitting with our gospel reading for a few moments. If you have a Bible, you may want to keep it out. Luke chapter 15. And we're sitting with parables of Jesus. Luke 15 has three famous parables in a row. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost child. The prodigal child, the prodigal son. We read just now two of those three. Those two are kind of like opening acts, like if you were at a concert. These are the warm-up acts meant to get our heads in this space to lead us into really what is likely, arguably, the most well-known of all of Jesus' stories, the prodigal son. Jesus loved to teach in parables. They say roughly a third of his lessons, his teaching, were in this parabolic format. Jesus uses them time and time again. These are not historical stories. He's telling them to teach us something, and yet even though they're not historical, they are not simply quaint stories. I have a quote that we can throw up here on the screen, really helpful definition of parables. Ken Bailey puts it this way. He says, a parable is a house in which the the reader or the listener is invited to take up residence. And If the parable is a house in which the listener or reader is invited to take up residence, then that person is urged by the parable to look on the world through the windows of that residence. I find that to be really helpful because he's saying parables give us a new worldview. Parables are a new way by which you and I see the world. We see something differently than we otherwise would have seen it. And so when we enter into, using his image, this house that he offers us, this house of parables. When we join with the crowds that are here listening to Jesus speak, I believe we begin to see him and our own lives and world in very different ways. Whenever I read Jesus's parables and his public teaching, I'm always amazed by the way in which he is able to draw crowds together. You notice this? Groups that really have nothing to do with one another. He's able to pull them together, not just in private one-on-one ways, but often in these very big public, even chaotic spaces, Jesus is able to draw the attention of a crowd and pull them into where they'll listen to him. I've never heard preachers do this well, especially in these types of settings. I've seen many a street preacher be bold and be loud, but no one stops and listens. They do not have a way of capturing in the way that Jesus was able to. And yet here in our story, he's surrounded by tax collectors and sinners, as it calls them, on the one hand. And then Pharisees and teachers of the law on the other, two groups that despise one another, frankly, and yet they're all gathering around Jesus. And so what does he do? He sits them down and he tells them a story, a story that invites them into seeing the world outside of all of the categories they've inherited, all of the default ways they assume the world works. And so he tells three stories about seeking out lost things, lost sheep, lost coins, lost children. In some ways, these are very simple stories, very easy for us to understand. In other ways, these are utterly foreign to you and to me, completely and utterly foreign. For me, the first one especially, if I'm honest, about sheep is a little tricky. My life is utterly and completely modern. I imagine yours is as well. Few of us, if any, have any firsthand knowledge or interaction with things like sheep and shepherds. 
we are entirely disconnected from the processes by which things like our food and our clothing are produced. And yet what's fascinating to me, thousands of years later, we read these stories and are still drawn to them. Even though we know nothing of this world or what this actually consisted of, we are drawn to them. There's something deeply human, I think, about these basic stories. We learned them as kids. My children spent the first five years of their lives almost exclusively being told the sounds that barnyard animals make. You probably did too as a child. They've never been to a farm, really, to speak of. They're entirely suburban and urban children. They think that food grows on the aisles of supermarkets, and yet they have spent much of their life with me as their parent making sounds that I've likely not even heard myself. But my parents told me this is what they sound like, and so we are drawn into this idea, this image of of nature, of things outside of our normal day-to-day existence. My kids to this day still long for organic, natural beauty. My kids know not to touch our phones, and yet a few days ago, uh, I walked past my bedroom. My, My daughter doesn't see me, and she goes over to the nightstand and grabs my wife's phone, and she holds down the button, and she says, hey, Siri. Show me pictures of cute puppies. (laughs) And I just watch the whole thing happen. I kind of just walk on. They're drawn to this. There's something about this that they are drawn to. And I would say, just as an aside, I think that's a really good thing. Whether you have kids or not, find ways to be reconnected to organic process, to actual real life, to see the way in which your food is made, your clothes are made. I think it helps us enter into these stories to understand our world today, and the world of the Bible. If you have kids, take it as an opportunity. Actually go to a farm. Show your kids where your food comes from. Remind them that chicken nuggets once were living, breathing things. Sort of. (laughs) Start a garden. If you don't garden, have a go at it. I'm terrible at it, but we've tried year after year. Um, I try and find simple ways to reconnect to the world as it actually is made, as God made it. A few years ago, my wife and I were watching uh, one of the food shows on Netflix. We just, like, they keep putting them out and we just keep watching them. And it was Somebody Feed Phil. Have you seen this show? It's great. It's the guy who made Everybody Loves Raymond and he lives the life we all wish we could live. He just wanders around the world eating street food and fine dining in equal measure. And he was in Mexico City and half the episode was spent on finding the perfect corn tortillas. And we watched it and it finished and I thought... I'm going to make corn tortillas. And so I bought a 50-pound bag of field corn off of Amazon because, of course, they sell that on Amazon. It arrives. Between that and YouTube, off we go. Three days, multiple hours of hand-grinding corn to yield 50 tortillas that after about 30 minutes are stale and don't even taste that great. But I loved it. I loved everything about it because it felt like in some way I've reconnected with what is not in any way efficient, but I think is actually very good for us in our fast-paced modern society to find ways to say, if we can re-enter into this way of life, this way of seeing the world, of slowing down in these ways, I think stories like Jesus' parables make sense to us in an entirely different way. So you don't have to go make corn tortillas. I don't recommend it, actually. But find ways to slow down and enter into these stories. So in so doing, three things I want to say, really three questions as we walk through this for a few minutes. Really simple questions. First, who is the flock of God? In this story, who is the flock of God? Who does he love? Who does he seek after until they are found? The first two verses, I think, really set the stage for everything we've just read. 
You have tax collectors and sinners gathering around Jesus. Jesus is confusing. He is irritating, upsetting their established understanding of the world and the way in which the religious life works of their day. So they say, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and he eats with them. That one sentence is saying quite a lot about Jesus and his ministry. They're saying this man calls himself a rabbi, calls himself a faithful Jewish teacher and leader, and yet does he not know how out of line he is, how ceremonially impure he is making himself? Israel, Jesus, you may not know, we are the set-apart people of God. We are God's chosen people. We have nothing to do with those outside of this people. What do we owe them, if anything, at all? We owe them nothing. And to this, part of the reason Jesus tells these stories is he's trying to broaden their vision and ours, to say you actually do belong to one another in more ways than you could ever know or imagine. And so he says the lost sheep belongs to him, and it is good and right to go and seek it out. The lost coin actually belongs to the other coins. These all go together. And so it is good and should be included in the whole. And so when we hear these stories, especially really familiar stories of Jesus, we need to sit with them and say there's really two ways we need to look at them. First is personal, but then also is holistically and corporately. Because yes, this is a personal story. You and I should read this and can read it and gain significant things about our own life, particular ways in which it speaks to you and to me. If you have ever found yourself feeling marginalized by the church, by people who do things in the name of God, maybe by God himself, and you feel like you don't fit the mold and there's not a place for you, these stories are really beautiful and good and true for you because they invite you into a world that reminds you that there's a place for you. You are loved and welcomed. You're sought after. It's a world where you're actually deeply and profoundly Wanted. There is a massive difference, especially if you've ever felt marginalized, you know this. There's a massive difference between, to- between being tolerated and being wanted. Between being tolerated and being pursued. So this is really good news. These stories are great news for us. But there's also this universal dimension, and I don't want us to miss this either. I think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for us, all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. There's something going on here that is speaking to the whole of creation itself. And that's why both of these stories have this great joy, this communal joy. The lost coin that is found, I think, is a foreshadowing of the great feast that the father throws in the next passage. But the woman who finds the coin gathers together her friends and family and says, this is a cause for celebration, communal celebration and joy, which reminds us this is the character and the nature of God. He seeks out things that are lost, and then when they are found, he takes incredible joy in them. And I think it's a good thing for us to remember when we think about the character and nature of God, because if we get this wrong, we will struggle with these stories entirely. If we are the ones who have wandered away, and yet we think God is like the angry father on the front porch in the rocking chair, waiting for us to come home after curfew and to tear into us then we're probably not going to want to come home. We're going to stay as far away as we can. And yet, this is where we're called to repent. That's the biblical word. And repent means turn around, literally turn around and come back the other way. But when we do, what do we find? Because if we're afraid of God and his character, we may never turn around because we don't want to see what's there. But Jesus is trying to remind us when we turn around, what we see fundamentally is love. God's love and mercy towards us. St. Basil the Great put it this way. 
He says, if you will surrender yourself, he will not hold back. And we think, what will he not hold back? His wrath? His anger? No, his love. He will not hold back his love. In his kindness, God will lift you up on his shoulders, rejoicing that he has found his sheep that was lost. Secondly, how does he care for his flock? How do we encounter this love that is there for us? There's much that we could say. I want to think for just a minute about the nature of being a shepherd itself. What does it mean to be a shepherd? Fundamentally, I believe it means that a shepherd leads his sheep. A shepherd is meant to lead, and I think we miss this often. Again, being a shepherd is, for me, a totally hypothetical, abstract idea that I read in children's books or in biblical stories. Or it's fueled by other kind of quaint ideas I have of sheep and shepherding. And so I think to be a shepherd is someone who takes a nap under a tree, like in Ireland somewhere, while the sheep kind of graze over in the pasture. This very quaint pastoral postcard image. Even certain biblical images, I think, feed into this. If you grew up in the church, you likely grew up with Psalm 23, which is this kind of sing-song, poetic, nostalgic psalm that we all know. And we can miss the fact in all of its sleepiness, all of its sitting beside still waters, that the fundamental thrust of that psalm is that the shepherd leads us into those places, leads us through treacherous terrain. That's fundamentally what a shepherd does. They lead us beside still waters. So to be a shepherd is not passive. To be a shepherd is fundamentally an active job. They lead us into places you and I otherwise would not know exist or would not know how to get to ourselves. I think what falls to us then is to get in line, to actually follow the shepherd as he leads. Because I think we are far more like sheep than we realize. And sheep fundamentally at their core need a shepherd. I will tell you a story now that I promise is true. You can find it on the BBC. In 2005, in Turkey, a few shepherds went and had their morning break. They went and had breakfast. One of their sheep went over the cliff to its death. Very sad. Another sheep follows, and another, and another. Eventually, 1,500 sheep followed that one sheep, and they all went over the cliff. The shepherds come back. None of their sheep are there. The best part of the whole story is only 400 of the sheep died, because once 400 got down there, there was enough of a woolen cushion that the rest of them bounced off and lived happily ever after. You think I'm making this up, or this is like just a preacher story. It is true. It is a verifiable story that happened in 2005 in Turkey. Sheep are not smart. Sheep are very stupid creatures. Interestingly, the Bible never compares us in that way to sheep. Often you will hear sermons like this and say, we're just stupid like sheep. And that's why we need a ship. No, we are dignified people made in the image and likeness of God, meant to bear his image in the world. We have incredible dignity, but we desperately need to be led. We have to be led and see this as our response, to see Jesus as a shepherd who seeks us out. And when he finds us in our misery, when we are lost and at the brink, to actually trust that he's good and follow him back. And so as we wrap up, third, what does the shepherd want from his flock? What does he want from his flock? Two things as we land I think personally, as I've just said, he wants us to follow him as he leads. Jonathan Goode, if you were here last week, did such a good job speaking to this idea of the cost of discipleship. This reality that Jesus isn't just here to tell us good things and nice things about ourselves, but Jesus 
actually asks us to do hard things. That's what a shepherd does. He leads us and we follow, but sometimes he leads us in difficult ways, leads us in ways that require something painful, something sacrificial of us. And so we have to learn what it means to surrender, to give up something of our freedom to truly then be a disciple. We talk about freedom a lot in America. I feel like America and freedom seem to go hand in hand these days. Freedom can mean two things. On the one hand, you can be free from restraint. If you are lacking freedom, you are restrained and constrained. And there's certainly a good theological truth to this, this idea that Jesus comes and frees us from the bonds that enslave us, from our misery and captivity to sin and to death. And yet we then kind of add a layer of Americanness to this. And we say, ah, now I'm free and I'm cut loose to do whatever I want. No restraints, nothing can hold me back. We have hymns about this kind of freedom. And yet that is not true Christian freedom. Sometimes Christian freedom requires very real constraint from you and from me. And we have to realize that. Jesus does set us free, but he does not cut us loose. The freedom God gives us comes with very real restraints. Think about that this week. The freedom you and I love and enjoy and celebrate invites us still to follow, still to step in line in the ways that he leads us. But it's not bondage. It's not a return to bondage. It is actually true freedom. You see this throughout the Psalms. If you ever struggle to read the Psalms, read them through this lens. Psalm 119 is almost entirely about the freedom that comes from accepting restraint. It's a Psalm about delighting in the law of God. And it says, this is good and good for us as a people that we delight in his will and follow in his ways. And so I would just ask you, do you think God's will actually facilitates good things in your life? Most of my life, I would have said no. I would have said God's will is keeping me from the things I really want to do. And yet we actually have to say and believe to walk in his ways is for our good and leads us into true freedom. True freedom. So firstly, we learn to follow as he leads and we find the joy in doing so. And then secondly, as we wrap up, as we are brought back into the fold, you and I also then have to do the second much harder step of having eyes to see others who are lost, others who are on the fringe, who need to be brought back into this. I think part of our Christian faith, like the woman looking for her lost coin, has to have this unshakable desire to see that which is out of order and lost, restored, and put back together. I'll give you a really simple, even silly example. My family, we love to play board games, Monopoly Deal, Ticket to Ride, all sorts of games. My kids are just now old enough that we actually can play by the rules, which is really fun. We can have a full game and see it all the way through and someone wins. It's, it's The competitive side of me really rejoices in this. And yet I'm also like mildly OCD. And so if one card goes missing, if one train from Ticket to Ride goes missing, I kind of just flip out because it's not how it's supposed to be. My family can attest to this. And they would just say, you just got to get over it, man. Like, it's just not a big deal. And, and in my defense, what I would say is I think it is, one, it is a big deal. But also the reason I care about this so deeply is it's not how it's meant to be. These games, they tell a story. There's a self-contained narrative to them. And if all the pieces do not find their way home, it's somehow incomplete. It's somehow deeply lacking what it is actually meant to be. And as silly as that may be, when I read the woman looking for the lost coin, it 
so resonates with me because I feel that relentless, restless quest she has to find the coin. The coin she lost was a full day's wage. So she's far more justified than in finding one lost toy from a game than I would have been. But the same heart is there. And I hope you see where I'm going with this. We have to have this unshakable urge, unshakable urge to see things that are broken and not how they're meant to be restored and woven and grafted back into God's story. That's what he invites you and me into, to have this restless urgency to find things that are lost and reintegrate them into God's story. I'll be the first to acknowledge when we say things in church like being concerned for the lost, I have seen many terrible examples of what we would call evangelism. Even saying the word gives a few of you a tick. (laughs) When I hear the word, I think of my own childhood. I think of going out on hot days to the highway by my house and our whole youth group would hand out Coke cans with gospel tracks stuck in them and would kind of just shove them in people's windows and just keep on going down the aisle. Like, Like not effective, ultimately really effective ways to share the gospel. So don't hear what I'm not saying even really good, well-intentioned things. This is not primarily what I want us to do. What I do want us to do is leave here today thinking, what does it look like for me who has been welcomed in by the love of God in beautiful and good and redemptive ways to embody this way of life? St. John Paul II famously once said, the world is tired of hearing us talk. They want saints. The world is tired of hearing us talk. They want saints. And maybe that's a really good point to end on. In a Facebook and Twitter age when all we do is talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. I think we so rarely stop and realize all of our talking is not making us into saints. It's not making us holy people who are found to be deeply compelling by a world that is lost and in need. And so maybe that's a helpful place for us to land today. The world is tired of hearing us talk. Let us find those who have been welcomed and redeemed and restored by God. Let us find ways to stop talking and become saints. As you're able, would you please stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.